When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavalu and this is Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. And I'm joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. Joan, Patrick, welcome. Hello, Frank. Hi, Frank. Joan, Patrick, before we get started, let me read a quick summary that I wrote about Animal Farm. Set on a small farm in England, Animal Farm is the story of a revolution, a revolution by farm animals to depose their cruel farmer master and create an animal utopia where all animals are equal and all farm work is done for the good of the whole. However, once leaders emerge among the animals, followers are also needed. Followers who soon learn that the new boss is just the same as the old boss. So Joan, with that introduction, let me ask you, is this the first time you read Animal Farm? No, it's not. But I'm almost embarrassed to say that the first time I did read it, I was an adult. How did you manage to skip Animal Farm in high school? Nobody signed it to me. (laughs) So you didn't actually skip it? No, no. It was a book I had long heard of and was reluctant to read because it was a whole book about animals. And I just thought, do I really want to read such a story? But you can't hide from Animal Farm. It comes up in lots and lots of discussions. So finally, about 10 years or so ago, I decided to read it was fascinated by it, realized there's a story under that story, and I don't know all that I should know to absorb Animal Farm. But it did inspire me to read up a little bit more on Soviet history and communism, and coming back to this story, I found it just astounding. Well, Patrick, how about you? Was this the first time you read it? No, I've probably read it five or six times over the years. So you didn't escape it in high school? No, I didn't. It is a short little book. You could read it easily in one sitting, so it's easy to return to. I prefer to think of it almost as a fable, a story about animals that teaches a moral lesson. Sure, I think that's not disguised in the story. This is a fable with the animal characters standing in for some real-life historical characters. Right, historical characters that we can discuss later. But what I found even more interesting upon this most recent reading is realizing that a lot of these characters have universal character traits that are good, though they can be used for bad, like leadership, or like the workhorse boxer. He believes in the mission as it's explained to him, and so he works hard as a point of honor. And Joan, it's because the characters and the situations are universal and don't necessarily only have to apply to the history of the Soviet Union or to the history of communism that makes this one of the world's greatest stories. This book is a classic for those reasons. It deals with human nature. Exactly. And because it only referred to one economic philosophy or one political philosophy, that doesn't mean that it can't apply to aspects of other political philosophies or economic philosophies. If the shoe fits, we're going to run it up the flag. (laughs) Okay, Joan, Patrick, let's start at the very beginning. We meet Mr. Jones on the Manor Farm. Well, we meet Mr. Jones, the owner of Manor Farm, as he's putting the farm to bed one night, and he's stumbling upstairs to his bedroom drunk. And then quickly, here on the first page, we realize what type of story this is going to be, because the animals have decided that they're going to get together and have a little meeting about the way things are going on the farm. A meeting called by Old Major. Who was Old Major? Old Major was the prize middle white boar. 
An old major had spread the word that he had a dream and that he wanted to communicate this dream to all the animals of the farm. We're quickly led to understand that he's sort of the leader of the animals on this farm. So if old major says, I've had a dream, we're going to have a meeting so I can tell you about this dream, all the animals on the farm are going to show up to hear what this was. And there's a lot of animals on this farm. We've got the dogs, Bluebell, Jesse, and Pincher, and then some of the other pigs. And there are the hens and the pigeons, the sheep and the cows. We meet a couple of the horses, Clover and Boxer, Muriel, the white goat, and Benjamin, the donkey. And don't forget Molly, the pretty horse. That's right. She drives the little cart for the farmer's wife. Yes, and she has her hair braided and bowed every chance she gets. Right. Whereas Boxer and Clover are working horses, Molly's a show horse. Yes, she is. And there's sort of an idyllic little picture painted here with all the animals coming together. Right. When Boxer and Clover come into the barn, they're huge animals, and they step lightly across the straw in case there's any little animals that would get crushed under their feet. They're looking out for each other. And I suppose we shouldn't forget Moses. Oh, we better not forget Moses. The old tame raven. Or the cat, who comes in, looks for the warmest space, lies down in it, and promptly falls asleep. And those of you with cats will understand. (laughs) Yes. All right, Patrick, Joan, the animals are all here. They're all ready to listen to Major's dream. What is Major's dream? He says, before I tell you about my dream, there's a couple things I want to say to you. He says, now, comrades, what is the nature of this life of ours? Let us face it. Our lives are miserable, laborious, and short. Basically, he goes on to say, our lives are run by these human beings. They give us just enough food so that we can work as hard as we possibly can for them. And then when we can't work anymore for them, they, in one way or another, kill us. We're not free. Why do we do this for these human beings? Essentially, Old Major blames man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Right, so he starts stirring up discontent among the animals. And Old Major's condemnation of man really continues. It's not just that man is stealing the product of their lives. He's taking their children. He's killing pigs before they grow. He's taking eggs from chickens. To the animals, it's now murder. Right, so he tells them now that they must resolve that man is the enemy. Never listen when they tell you that man and the animals have a common interest, that the prosperity of the one is the prosperity of the others. It is all lies. All right, but Patrick, how does he tie this sort of utopian animal philosophy into his dream? Well, he says, I will tell you about my dream. It was a dream of the earth as it will be when man has vanished. And then he recalls this song from his youth entitled The Beasts of England. And he starts to sing it, and he gets all the other animals singing the song as well. The main chorus is, Beasts of England, beasts of Ireland, beasts of every land and clime, hearken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. So this almost becomes their anthem now. Right, and sort of attractive because this is an attractive future, and Old Major really isn't asking anything of them at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, when the time comes, we'll know it's right, and then we're going to inherit this future. But the time has not come just yet. Joan, the next chapter brings us the death of Major. Right, just three or four days later, he dies peacefully in his sleep. But even with Old Major dead, it seems that his call for an animal rebellion has taken hold. It does. Among the remaining pigs on the farm, Snowball and Napoleon take up Old Major's message. Now, these are two very different pigs, though. Tell me a little bit about Napoleon. He was a large, rather fierce-looking Berkshire boar. Not much of a talker, but with a reputation for getting his own way. Tell me a little bit about Snowball. 
Snowball was a more vivacious pig than Napoleon. He was quicker in speech and more inventive, but was not considered to have the same depth of character. The other male pigs on the farm were porkers. <laughs> and the best known among them was a small, fat pig named Squealer, with very round cheeks, twinkling eyes, a shrill voice, but he was a brilliant talker. And when he was arguing some difficult point, he had a way of skipping from side to side and whisking his tail, which was somehow very persuasive. So, Patrick, it seems that these three pigs, Napoleon, Snowball, and Squealer, emerge as the leaders. Well, they sort of take Old Major's idea and formulate it into a whole sort of ideology, which they call animalism. And they hold meetings among the animals trying to teach some of the smarter animals the rudiments of this ideology. The idea being that when the time comes, they don't know when that will be, they will be prepared to take advantage of it. And Joan, we're quickly shown that different animals on the farm have different learning capabilities and different capacities to understand this new philosophy that we're going to call animalism. Yes, and they were very dismissive of pretty little Molly when she asked the simple question, well, will there be sugar after the rebellion? And Snowball tells her, no, we have no means of making sugar on this farm. And besides, you do not need sugar. And Patrick, there's another animal that's not ready to buy into this whole new program, Moses the raven. As a bird, he's a little more independent than some of these other animals that obviously are stuck in their stalls and that sort of thing. So the pigs had a harder time counteracting, as they put it, the lies put out by Moses. They said that he was Jones, a special pet, and that he was a spy and a talebearer and a clever talker. But Moses has a different vision of the future, almost a religious vision. Moses claims to know the existence of a mysterious country called Sugar Candy Mountain, to which all animals went when they died. And the idea is that there may be suffering in this world, but in the next world, in Sugar Candy Mountain, everything will be great. Of course, the problem with this way of thinking is it doesn't encourage the animals to rebel against the life they have in this world on Manor Farm because they have something better to look forward to. But the pigs do have some true believers. Boxer and Clover, the other two workhorses, buy into this new animalism from the beginning completely. Well, they're not very smart. They know they're not very smart. They know that the pigs are smart. And the pigs are telling them that animalism is good. And so they're going to believe it too. Well, they have faith in it. But we still have Mr. Jones on the farm. If the animals want a rebellion, they're going to have to get rid of Mr. Jones. Well, Mr. Jones certainly helps the animals along in that his drinking has become more and more prominent in his life, and therefore his taking care of the animals has become less and less prominent to the point where he forgets about them. That's right. It all comes to a head on one weekend where Farmer Jones essentially shuts down the farm, goes out drinking and falls asleep while the cows have been unmilked, the chickens' eggs have been uncollected, the hay has not been distributed, the feed hasn't gotten to the right animals. So one of the cows has had enough and breaks in one of the storerooms in the barn for grain. This creates a commotion which wakes up Mr. Jones and the hired hands that work on his farm. And they come out with their whips ready to beat the animals back into submission. But the animals fight back. In fact, they flung themselves upon their tormentors. Jones and his men suddenly found themselves being butted and kicked from all sides. The situation was quite out of their control. And in a moment, they're all fleeing for their lives down the road and off the farm. And in the next moment, the animals realize it's done. The rebellion is complete. We own the farm. Animalism has triumphed? Who knew it'd be so easy? But Patrick, the National Day of Independence celebration doesn't last for long. The animals have to get to work and run this farm. 
the first thing they do is change the name from manor farm to animal farm. And in this, it's been revealed that the pigs have learned to read and to write, and they change the sign from manor to animal farm. And then they hold a meeting in which they're going to lay out the seven commandments of animal farm. And these are going to be the rules under which the farm is going to be run. But these are going to be more than rules just for running the farm. These are essentially the tenets of their new animalism philosophy. Exactly. These are ways of life. Well, Patrick and Joan, let's read those seven commandments. The first one is, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Number two, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. Number three, no animal shall wear clothes. No animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall drink alcohol. No animal shall kill any other animal. And the seventh one, all animals are equal. Mm-hmm. Right, and these commandments were written up on the wall of the barn for all to see. Well, Patrick, philosophizing is good, but these animals have to run the farm. There's a hay harvest to get in. Exactly. And Snowball says, let's make it a point of honor to bring in the hay faster than Jones and his men could. So he sends all the animals out to collect the hay. And they're excited to do it. This is now their farm. It's their hay. Right. They're working for themselves now. Excellent. So they're about to rush out when the cows speak up. And say, hey, it's been a day or so since we've been milked, and we really need to be milked. So fortunately, the pigs are able to milk the cows. Because, of course, certain things had not been considered in animalism, that there are certain jobs that it's hard to do if you walk only on four legs. But they figure it out. They use their trotters, right? their front legs, to actually milk their comrades, the cows. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But what happens to the milk? Well, this is the first hint we get of the dark side of this new ideology. Of course, the milking produces a few buckets of nice, frothy milk. In the old day, the milk would go to Farmer Jones. They wonder, well, what are we going to do with this milk now? And some of the hens say, hey, well, Farmer Jones used to put a little bit into our mash in the morning. And Napoleon quickly steps in front of the buckets and says, don't worry about the milk now. It will be attended to. Head out to the fields to bring in the hay. And the chapter ends this way. So the animals trooped down to the hayfield to begin the harvest. And when they came back in the evening, it was noticed the milk had disappeared. Yes, but ominous as that sounds, actually the harvest goes really well. And it's pretty much an idyllic summer on Animal Farm. That's right. All through the summer, that work of the farm went like clockwork. And we're quickly impressed with the amount of work Boxer is doing. He has taken it upon himself to really be, no pun intended, the workhorse of this farm. Right. It's hard work on the farm, but the animals are now working for themselves. So, as Boxer is, they're happy to work harder. And as the book says, everyone worked according to his capacity. Right, which means Mm -hmm. the pigs actually don't do any work, or at least they don't do any physical labor. Yes, but Squealer explains that. How does he explain that? Well, the pigs are responsible for the brain work on the farm, which also explains the disappearance of the milk. And most of the apples. Although the pigs don't like milk or apples. (laughs) No, no. It has been scientifically proven that it's necessary for their health, and they have to keep their brains in good working order to keep the farm running. That squealer sure can spin. Dancing on his tail the whole time. (laughs) But there is another ominous note from this chapter. What's that? Well, a couple of the dogs have had a litter, and Napoleon has taken them from their mothers and sort of secreted them up in a loft in the barn. Apparently, he is going to raise them. Well, he's going to educate them. Right, which makes you wonder about the pigs. There's lots of reasons to wonder about the pigs. I want to find out a little bit more about what those pigs are up to. All right, Joan, Patrick, we said that the animals are having a pretty good summer here. They're running this farm. But I can't imagine Mr. Jones is taking the loss of his farm lightly. 
Well, he's not taking it lightly, but he's not doing much beyond complaining about it in the local pub and trying to interest his neighbors, Farmer Pilkington and Frederick, in recapturing his farm. And of course, they're quite concerned that their animals might hear of this and decide to do the same thing. And it's because of this fear of the rebellion spreading, they eventually come up with a plan to help Mr. Jones take back his farm. Right. They're going to wait till one day in the fall after the harvest has been taken in. And then some of the men head over with weapons to Animal Farm. But Joan, the animals on Animal Farm are not unprepared for this. Well, one, Snowball has been reading a book about Julius Caesar's campaigns, which he found in the farmhouse. So he was preparing defensive operations. And, of course, they've got an early alarm system in the pigeons who tell them that there are human beings coming up the road. So a battle ensues between the animals and the men. And actually, Snowball sort of saves the day with an ambush of the men as they enter the farmyard. And during the battle, Boxer gave one of the farmers what he thought to be a fatal kick. And it was really touching to see how difficult that was for Boxer to think that he had taken a life, even if it was a human life. They call it the Battle of the Cowshed. Yes, and at the end of the battle, the animals give medals to Boxer and Snowball. That's right, because after all, Snowball was actually wounded in this battle. Exactly. Animal hero first class was bestowed on Snowball and Boxer. Although, curiously, Napoleon didn't seem to play a role in this battle. But Joan, with winter coming, troubles are also coming for Animal Farm. There's actually some animosity showing up between Snowball and Napoleon. That's right. Snowball has plans to build a windmill on the farm, which Napoleon opposes. He said, well, it may be a good thing in the end, but we might starve to death before it's built. But Snowball goes ahead with his designs and plans to present it at their annual meeting for a vote. We quickly come to understand that Napoleon's not so much opposed to the windmill as it seems he's opposed to it being Snowball's windmill. Well, Patrick, how does this meeting go? Well, Snowball was the more eloquent of the two, and when he gets done making his presentation, he has swayed the previously evenly divided animals in favor of his windmill project. They all agree with him like sheep. Right. But now it's Napoleon's turn. He doesn't get up and make a pretty speech. He stands there and utters a high-pitched whimper of a kind no one had ever heard him utter before. And at that noise, there was a terrible bang sound outside, and nine enormous dogs wearing brass-studded collars came bounding into the barn. They dashed straight for Snowball, who only sprang from his place just in time to escape their snapping jaws. The puppies. We finally found out what happened to those puppies. Right, so Snowball is gone. He's been evicted from the farm. And now Napoleon resumes the stage. With his nine dogs. And he announces that there are going to be no more Sunday meetings. Napoleon and a select group of pigs are going to meet every week, and they're going to decide what's going to happen on Animal Farm. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Of course, Squealer's job then is to go about the farm explaining the new arrangement. He assures them that do not imagine, comrades, that leadership is a pleasure. On the contrary, it is a deep and heavy responsibility. And for some of the younger pigs who can't be spun, when they murmur some objections, the dogs need only growl and bare their fangs for them to fall in line. And then the revisionist history begins. 
Squealer says you don't want to end up like Snowball. And of course, some of the other animals say, well, Snowball was a brave fighter at the Battle of the Cowshed. He was a hero first class. Right. Squealer says, well, he may have fought bravely, but bravery is not enough. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And I believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in that battle was much exaggerated. And what about the windmill? More revisionism. Right, it's going to turn out that the windmill is actually an idea that Napoleon is going to adopt. Not only is he going to adopt it, but Squealer convinces the other animals the windmill was Napoleon's idea all along. Exactly. He spoke against it just to get Snowball to reveal himself as the traitor that he was. Right. And now that he's out of our way, yes, we are going to go ahead and build this windmill. That's right. So all that year, the animals worked like slaves. Now it's almost as if they're working for Napoleon and his farm. But fortunately for the animals now, they still believed in the mission and they were happy in their work. Even if it was now a 60-hour week and they worked on Sundays. Right, and there are going to be some more changes in the operation. Napoleon announces that he had decided upon a new policy, that from now on, Animal Farm would engage in trade with neighboring farms. Not, of course, for any commercial purpose. That would be wrong. Exactly, but simply in order to obtain certain materials which were urgently necessary. Essentially, they needed materials to build the windmill that they obviously couldn't get on the farm. Cement, mortar. So they have to trade with someone. And it's these changes that bring Mr. Wimper to the farm. He's going to be the agent that takes the goods from Animal Farm, sells them in town, and brings the animals the materials they need. But this is now a new wrinkle for the animals on Animal Farm. Certainly a modification of four legs good, two legs bad. Exactly. But the animals just continue to work with Boxer leading them. And Boxer believed so much in the mission and his responsibility to that mission that he, who had already been getting up a half hour before everybody else to work, now made himself get up 45 minutes before everybody else. While Boxer and the other animals are working hard, Mr. Wimper's making deals, what are the pigs up to? The pigs suddenly move into the farmhouse. But Joan, I seem to remember a commandment against that. Right, the animals thought they did too. Something about no animal shall sleep in a bed. Right. But Squealer assures them, no, 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 no. Look at the writing on the wall. And sure enough, it says, no animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. Ah, so it wasn't about beds. Because after all, a pile of straw in a stall is a bed. Exactly. It's sheets that animals don't have. And of course, the pigs certainly won't put sheets on their beds. Of course. Hmm. But throughout all this, they are building that windmill, and they are proud of it. But then November comes, and with it, the raging southwest winds, and down goes the windmill. Right, the windmill is damaged in a storm. It's not damaged in a storm. Oh, I'm sorry, that's right. It turns out that Snowball has been responsible for this sabotage of the windmill. The traitor. Much to the great surprise of all the other animals. A death sentence is pronounced on Snowball. And he's been demoted to animal hero second class. But the animals, they're just shocked and full of indignation that Snowball had turned on them so. And it gave them the motivation they needed to go back and build that windmill again, bigger and stronger than ever. And they're going to start right now, rain or shine. And then the next chapter opens, it was a bitter winter. In January, the food fell short. Here we go. But the never-failing boxer just continues to say, I will work harder. But Napoleon and the pigs are working harder, too. They're selling off the eggs of the chickens to Mr. Wimper to get money. And this certainly doesn't sit well with the hens, who, of course, consider now the taking of their eggs murder. And this is just what Mr. Jones used to do. Right. But the hens are clever, and they actually start a mini-rebellion. How do they do that? 
Well, they decide they're going to fly up to the rafters of the barn and lay their eggs up there where the pigs can either not get to them or they fall off and break on the ground. I think we've all learned enough about Napoleon to understand that he's not going to allow this rebellion to last long. No. He cracks down and he cracks down hard. He orders that the hens be denied any food and that order is enforced with the dogs. And that if any other animal gave the hens food, they would all be put to death. And what's the result of this mini-rebellion? Eventually the hens capitulate, but not before nine of them starve to death. And this really starts a continuum of trade between Animal Farm and some of the other farms in the area, all being done through Mr. Wimper. And also, Snowball makes a reappearance, sort of. Not actually Snowball. Right, but according to Napoleon, he's coming in at night, breaking eggs, stealing corn, tearing up the garden... That's right. In their minds, he's gone from a mere trader to actually a saboteur to try to bring down Animal Farm. Exactly. And going back to the Battle of the Cowshed, Squealer explains how he really wasn't a hero there. And actually, he was in league with Jones from the very beginning. And that was only Napoleon who saved the day at the last moment. Don't you remember that when panic was spreading and all seemed lost, that comrade Napoleon sprang forward with a cry of death to humanity and sank his teeth in Jones' leg? Surely you remember that, comrades. And while Boxer doesn't quite remember it, he says, well, if Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. And so the revisionism continues. Mm -hmm. Right. But Patrick, Napoleon's going to need some concrete enemies, too. He can't just blame everything on Snowball. That's right. He holds a couple trials and, and probably gets some of the other animals to actually confess to committing some improbable crimes from stealing and hiding an ear of corn, to urinating in the drinking water. Yeah, that's what was amazing. Not only did he falsely accuse some animals of these crimes, but he actually got some of the animals to admit to crimes they had not committed. There's certainly sort of a witch hunt mentality taking hold. And with all these crimes being confessed and with all these trials, eventually some animals are actually executed. Right, and there's a passage, and so the tale of confessions and executions went on until there was a pile of corpses lying before Napoleon's feet and the air was heavy with the smell of blood, which had been unknown there since the expulsion of Jones. Now, wait a minute. I thought there was a commandment about animals killing other animals. Right, and so did the other animals. They go to the wall to see what that commandment was. And sure enough, it reads, No animal shall kill any other animal without cause. So again, they revised the commandment. No, they didn't revise. The last two words had slipped out of the animal's memory. Somehow. Gotcha. All right, Patrick, Joan, now after the trials and the executions, Animal Farm is going to try to get down to living animalism under Napoleon. But it's Napoleon's brand of animalism. However, he's more heard than seen. As Napoleon has consolidated his power on Animal Farm, he's seen less and less in public. It's usually Squealer that communicates between Napoleon and the rest of the animals. Exactly. He'll come out and on a regular basis tell the animals how well Animal Farm is doing, how their production is up. And it doesn't really mean anything to the animals because they don't really have much more food than they've had in the past. In fact, maybe even a little less. Right, but they're being told how great everything is. So I guess it must be true. But Joan, there are a couple of moments where we do see Napoleon. You mean our dear leader, Napoleon. That's right. He's no longer just Napoleon. Right. Yeah, there's a real cult of personality that has developed around him. But Joan, as I said, we do see him a couple of times. Yes, Napoleon has been involved in some fierce negotiations with their two neighboring farmers, Frederick and Pilkington. Animal Farm has a huge pile of timber that both farmers want to buy. Most recently, Napoleon's favoring Pilkington, and so he's making it clear to the rest of the animals on the farm that Frederick is bad. As a matter of fact, he's going to attack them anytime soon. 
And that's why Squealer has the sheep running around bleeding, death to Frederick, death to Frederick. And the next time we see Napoleon, the windmill is finished. It is, amazingly. And the animals are so proud. In fact, Patrick, they give it a name. Napoleon Mill. Oh, yeah, they name it after the beloved leader. That's right. (laughs) Surprise. And they think nothing could ever bring this windmill down. Not wind, not storm, not snowball. And the good news continues when Napoleon announces the sale of the timber, but with a change. Yeah, much to all the animals' shock, the deal is made with Frederick. Now the sheep are bleeding death to Pilkington, death to Pilkington. That's right. Napoleon's very proud of the deal he cut with Frederick. Frederick wanted to pay with some sort of piece of paper called a check. But Napoleon was too smart for that, and he held out for real $5 banknotes. Hmm. He even displays them that night for all the animals to come and see all this piled up currency. But the next day, Mr. Wimper runs up to the farmhouse. There's a big commotion inside, and it turns out that the money was counterfeit. So Frederick got away with the timber without paying for it. Just like a human. So as you can imagine, the sheep are back to death to Frederick. Right, but that's not their only problem, because next thing you know, Frederick has launched his long-anticipated attack on Animal Farm. But this time, the humans are attacking a little smarter than they did last time. They've come with weapons. Exactly. And dynamite. But we're not afraid of dynamite. The windmill can't be dynamited. Napoleon told us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the animals believe as they look out and watch Frederick and his gang load up the base of the windmill with dynamite. So a moment later, when the cloud of rubble disappears, the windmill is gone. And the animals, outraged at this counterattack and a fierce battle ensues with lots of injuries. A lot of animals are killed. And Boxer is injured. But the animals are, in the end, victorious. Which confuses the animals because it didn't feel like a victory to them. But there is Napoleon and Squealer telling them how great it all is. So they celebrate or they eat their one extra ration. The pigs celebrate a little differently. Right, I think they find a case of whiskey. Down in Farmer Jones's basement. And the next day, word comes out. Late in the day. That the dear leader, Napoleon, looks like he's on his deathbed. Oh, no. But by the end of the day, the length of a hangover, Napoleon has rallied and recovered. Miraculously. Yes. <laughs> he's recovered and he has a new idea. Now he decides that Animal Farm's going to grow more barley and they're going to start a distillery. Now, wait a minute. I'm confused again. I thought there was a commandment that said, animals shall not drink alcohol. To excess. Right. You forgot that part, Frank. (sighs) That had slipped the other animals' minds as well. Well, I'm glad to hear Napoleon recovers, but how's Boxer doing? He recovers enough to go back into the field and work as hard as he can, but he's never back 100%. And actually, one day while continuing his work on the windmill, Boxer collapses. He gets a clean bed in his stall, and Benjamin and Clover do everything they can to take care of him, but of course they still have to work. So three days after he collapses, the van comes to pick up Boxer. A knacker van, we're told. Right. Napoleon has said he's called for an ambulance and that Boxers are going to be taken to the hospital to get the finest care available. But when the van shows up, it's the van for the glue factory. And the animals who saw the van pull in midday chase after that van and tell Boxer, Boxer, kick! Boxer, get out! And Boxer, as strong as he was, is too weak to do anything about it. And then three days later, Squealer announces that Boxer has died in a hospital, not as you were wrongly assuming, at a glue factory. No, no, that was just an old van that the hospital bought and they hadn't painted out the letters yet. And in fact, Napoleon himself comes out and gives a little eulogy for Boxer. Yes, and what do you know, he ended that speech with a reminder of Boxer's two favorite maxims. I will work harder, and Comrade Napoleon is always right. 
And then the next chapter opens, years past. A time came when there was no one who remembered the old days before the rebellion, except Clover, Benjamin, Moses the raven, and of course the pigs. Moses returned from time to time to Animal Farm. And strangely, the pigs who did not like his stories of Sugar Candy Mountain before the rebellion didn't seem to mind Moses spreading that story among the animals now. Because unlike before the rebellion, when the pigs did not want the animals to be content with their life under Farmer Jones, now when things aren't so easy, they do want the animals to be content. Sure, it helps to have the prospect of a future reward, since obviously they're not getting any rewards now. Opiate of the masses comes to mind. But really, the most pragmatic view is held by Benjamin, the donkey. To him, it doesn't matter who's in charge. Life is tough. But life hasn't been so tough for the pigs and the dogs under Napoleon. They're literally getting fat. They're living in the farmhouse, high on the hog. (laughs) But Joan, the pigs are doing more than just prospering. Yes, much to the shock of all the barn animals. One day, the pigs emerge from the farmhouse walking. On two legs. All right, now wait a minute. I know over time I've forgotten a few of the commandments, (laughs) but I thought the whole point of animalism was four legs good, two legs bad. No, no, no. As Squealer has explained it to the sheep, it is four legs good, two two legs legs better. better. Mm -hmm. And that sends the animals to get a look at their original commandments. And really, this was above the commandments. This was the first rule of animalism. What do you mean it was above the commandments, Frank? There is only one commandment of animalism. When they go back to the wall this time, there's only one commandment. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And then Orwell writes, After that, it did not seem strange when, next day, the pigs who were supervising the work of the farm all carried whips in their trotter. And it didn't seem strange that Napoleon was wearing Mr. Jones's clothes. And smoking his pipe. But Patrick, the changes continue. A week or so following this display, a bunch of carriages arrive, and it appears there's going to be a a large party in the farmhouse. Mr. Pilkington is sitting down at table with Napoleon. Now that I would have liked to have seen. So did the rest of the barn animals. So as the party gets underway, Benjamin, Clover, and a whole lot of animals who never knew life before the rebellion tiptoe up to the window of the farmhouse, and what they saw was amazing. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already, it was impossible to say which was which. And then, of course, for George Orwell to drive home the fact that we really have come full circle and that the new boss is just the same as the old boss, Napoleon goes out and renames Animal Farm Manor Farm. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's with the end of Animal Farm that our novel Animal Farm ends. That's right. Right. All right, Patrick, I know you have some definite opinions about who some of our characters were. Sure. I think it's generally accepted that Napoleon represents Stalin in the Soviet Union. And Animal Farm itself is representative of Russia after it's overthrown by the Communist Party and becomes the Soviet Union. Exactly. Snowball is generally seen to represent Leon Trotsky. And don't forget Old Major, who started this all, generally thought to be Marx. Yeah, actually a mix of Marx, the philosopher, and Lenin, the father of the revolution. Lenin, right, yes. And our neighboring farms represent Great Britain, I believe, and Germany. And Boxer represents the people, the hard-working people. The true believers. The true-fold believers. And of course, Moses, our raven. I think he's standing in for Marx's view of religion as an opiate of the masses. 
And Patrick, some of the events in our novel also recount real events. Right. The starvation of the hens and the starvation of the Ukrainian farmers in the 1930s. Stalin's purges and show trials correspond to the trials and executions that Napoleon holds. The deal with Frederick for the timber represents the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact. And even the way they used Snowball was reminiscent of the way Trotsky's reputation was trashed by Stalin. Sure, for everything that went wrong, Stalin blamed Trotsky. Mm-hmm. As you said at the beginning, Joan, there is a lot of story behind this story. This novel really does give a whole new meaning to the term pig-headed. <laughs> and I think it's with that that we'll end our conversation about the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. Joan, Patrick, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Frank. You're listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. Joining me now for EndNotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. All right, Ted, I got to tell you, I think the readers and I pretty much did your job for you today. Napoleon is Stalin, Snowball is Trotsky, Animal Farm is Russia. I think we pretty much covered it. Well, there's a little more. First off, let me quote George Orwell about three years after this was written. I have never visited Russia, and my knowledge of it consists only of what can be learned by reading books and newspapers. Wow. Well, Ted, how does he write Animal Farm without ever having been to Russia? George Orwell had decided to become a writer, quitting all other jobs. In 1928, he was living in Paris, trying to work, failing miserably. He talks about destroying everything he wrote. But by 1934, he was actually eating from his work, constantly seeking story ideas. And it happened that in passing a farm, and there were a lot of them, of course, back then, he saw an incident which triggered the idea that became Animal Farm. What was that incident? As Orwell explained in the preface for the Ukrainian edition of Animal Farm, I saw a little boy, perhaps 10 years old, driving a huge cart horse along a narrow path, whipping it whenever it tried to turn. It struck me that if only such animals became aware of their strength, we should have no power over them, and that men exploit animals in much the same way as the rich exploit the proletariat. Ted, I'm always fascinated to find out where authors get their inspirations for their works. And it's even more amazing to think that that little story inspired this novel, which is being read even now, 60 years later. Yes, and I think Orwell would have been surprised, too. In March of 1944, as he finished the book, he was commenting in a letter to one of his publishers, a man who did not take it, it is a little fairy story, about 30,000 words, with a political meaning. And with that, let's end our conversation today about the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. Thanks very much for coming in. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of The Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.